Hello there everyone and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I am Callum Roper and today I am joined by Callum Watt. Good morning, good afternoon, good afternoon. Yes, yeah, the afternoon, just about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joined by Bradley Alsop. Hi folks. And we're joined by a new guest on the podcast, Ewan Hodson, who's been a, a regular contributor on the blog side of, of what we've been doing. Hello, hello. Yes, I've been rambling about 80s labour, so I'm doing something right, I guess. Absolutely, and uh, thank you again for all your contributions. And obviously anybody listening, we welcome submissions and any contributions to the blog. And then obviously you might get a slot on the pod as well, the illustrious pod. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, obviously this week we've had quite a bit of news in regards to COVID. Obviously that seems to be a theme at the moment for the podcast for the last six or seven months or so. But uh, we've seen a lot of changes happen in terms of the, uh, in terms of some of the rules, the government is at least trying to be, seem to be more stricter on the rules, applying bigger fines and, larger restrictions on gatherings and weddings and funerals and advice going out to all sorts of groups now, including young people, but we'll get on to that later. Um, we've seen the new 10pm rule introduced, um, which is means that pubs now have to shut their doors and everybody left by 10pm, no exceptions. So we're seeing a lot of pubs saying last orders at 9.30 or 9.15. Table service is uh, is mandatory, no going to the bar anymore. And you have to wear your mask while you're moving around the pub. In Lincoln, we've already seen one pub shut down in breach of this rule. The uh, Dog and Bone in the East End has been shut down due to breaching this, with local press reporting a number of people there after the mandatory closing time. We've also seen a rise in cases across the country. A record couple of days on the 25th of September, we saw 6,000 873 cases in one day, which is which was a UK record since the pandemic began. Now we've seen the number rise continuously since then, and it seems to be on a trajectory where a number of people are predicting, I repeat, predicting 50,000 cases a day by mid-October if the measures taken do not take any real effect. Hospital emissions have also been rising in line with the rising number of cases, as expected. And in Lincoln, which was quite a surprise to me, it is above the national average of 100,000 with around 40, uh, 34 cases per day. So that's quite concerning. Now, Ewan, you wanted to give us a bit of a perspective on where you're from in Nottinghamshire, uh, exactly how lockdown's been going there and the, the COVID situation over there. So exactly what's been going on? Um, well, things in Nottinghamshire have been quite odd because it's almost kind of like the differences between like Lincolnshire and like Birmingham and like kind of um, kind of the West Midlands where they're quite like high because you almost get these kind of concentrations of um, big cities. Um, whilst in Nottinghamshire, it's been quite stable, very odd really. Um, and I think a lot of this has to do with it kind of not um Nottinghamshire and the East Midlands in general is a very old kind of like mining kind of like area and so you get a lot of these like kind of small random towns all kind of just placed out and they're all kind of spaced out from each other so what we're kind of getting in Nottinghamshire is due to a lot of this space and I think this is probably the thing in general in Britain is that we're seeing a lot of the kind of rises are in these big cities and um, very concentrated areas um, 
is that we do get kind of like a ebbs and flows. And so the area I'm in at the moment has been like, oh, there's been an increase of like eight cases in a week. And that's like, that's like major news. So it's very kind of like peaks and troughs in the area I'm in, which has been very interesting when you compare that to like what's happening in the nation. Yes, and I suppose I'm I'm currently down in London at the moment. I've just uh, gone down for a weekend for my birthday to see my family. And again, I, I'm seeing a complete difference to our experience in Lincoln and indeed your experience, you in, in, in Nottinghamshire. And I also went down to Margate and down there, there was motorbike racing on the beach with large crowds. Clearly, nobody was was adhering to social distancing guidelines. Nobody was paying attention. So it seems to be a number of areas of the country having some some sort of, I suppose, a, an ignorance towards it, whether they've chosen or not to, to have the ignorance. They, they seem to be almost seeming this as a hoax. Uh, we see increasingly the narrative around certainly on social media that the government are somehow trying to just remove people's civil liberties because that's what they want to do, not because they're trying to deal with the pandemic. Uh, Callum, I suppose you've probably seen this on many local news outlets, the Facebook comments and the sewage that's around there. Do you think that's particularly helpful? Should people be really quite worried or are they right to be sceptical about the government? Uh, well, I think they're right to be sceptical about the government. I mean, I, but I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, the um, I just wanted to uh, address the point about pubs. It's quite interesting um, what's happening with those because what we've seen um, over the last few months since the government told everyone to go out um, is uh, places like Weatherspoons have found it relatively easy to comply with uh, COVID regulations. So, you know, it, you've got a, a wide open space in most of their venues. Um, they can do table service, they can put up screens, so on and so forth. Um, you mentioned um, a, a pub which has been disciplined in Lincoln. Um, and I'm not surprised by that, not because of that particular pub, and I won't name them, but you can see how um, smaller venues um throughout the summer um were shall we say struggling a little bit to comply with those covid regulations um just because you know the the great british pub uh, isn't that great in terms of size um and you could see people sort of crammed in and bumping into one another and so on um and i was actually in one um last thursday just to see uh, what it was like when the uh, when the hammer came down, if you like, um, and they were quite strict actually. They were they were chucking people out like mad because I think they knew that the, uh, the, the the local constabulary would probably want to make make an example of them. So uh, this this COVID epidemic is particularly harsh on the hospitality industry uh, where these things haven't been thought through. Um, and it has reinforced the point I've made in previous podcasts, which is that we should probably have kept the uh, uh, hospitality locked down and just uh, kept people on furlough or made a serious effort to re-employ people elsewhere dur during the pandemic. Um, so there, there is a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, perhaps willful skepti uh, skepticism perhaps in the hospitality industry and amongst 
their uh, customer base, which, to be fair, will be a large portion of the population because going out and drinking is a huge part of our of our culture. Um, but to be fair, I think for the most part in people's daily lives, you know, you can see people walking around in masks. Most people, when they go into shops, um, you know, they're wearing masks and so on. Um, and I think it's very unfair, um, although obviously entirely predictable that the government is is blaming the resurgence in the pandemic uh, on people's behaviour when people at the end of the day, um, they, they're basically following government advice. They were told to go out to pubs and restaurants uh, and they have. And, and this is where we are. And we knew, um, as uh, as I've said before, that the end of September, beginning of October would probably be the beginning of the second wave. And lo and behold, it does look like, I don't know if we recorded it, but I did make a bet with, uh, with, with Bradley that we'd have a national lockdown before the end of September. Um, it looks like I'm going to lose that bet, but also I feel like uh, a national lockdown is still going to come in in, in the near future. Um, just because at the end of the day, people followed government advice and it's their fault. This is the long and short of it. Yes. Uh, Ewan, you put your hand up earlier. Did you want to come in? Yes. Um, I was just going to kind of mention about um, kind of restaurants and pubs and stuff because I actually work at a restaurant. And yesterday uh, was a Saturday. And usually with Saturdays, we kind of like close about like 11, but people like finishing their dinners about like half nine. Yesterday was like manic, trying to like um, get everyone to have. Essentially, what happened was you have about like um, two hours worth of people having to eat and get food within about just over an hour. You have about that amount of time, and so it's very much a hectic kind of like running around, um, making sure they all finish for about ten. And we managed to get everyone out by about like ten past ten, which I don't think any. Uh, police officer would really be uh, <laughs> trying too hard to like say that we did something wrong there because there was just one table left. It's always hard because you have to try and tell people to leave, and most people don't want to if they're in a restaurant or whatever. So that's that is the problem. Mm. And and I imagine at the moment, and I I know a number of pubs and restaurants are running on a reduced staff uh, levels purely because of social distancing, things like the kitchen and behind counters. Is that correct? Uh, it's a weird one in place I'm, I am. We quite often have more staff than is probably needed, but that's because there's real like peaks and troughs of like customers coming in. So I've I've worked shifts before where it's like um, we'll have about like probably fifty customers in in an evening, and that doesn't that sounds like a lot, but it's not really. We're like one that like we have like three restaurants in the town I live in and I work in one of them so you usually get like hundreds hundred per night or whatever um but no it's just been very weird because you get these like ones where it's like lots of staff lots of people um others where it's like no staff and there's loads of people it's been all over the place in terms of staffing (laughs) (laughs) okay and Bradley you wanted to come in there yeah I mean well I I was going to say I'm sure but Given the last six months, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, but I'm, I'm sure that some of this stuff is, is based on on solid epidemiological research, uh, and that and that's informing the the government's approach. Um, but I'm a little bit skeptical as to what the impact a, a, a ten o'clock uh, close date will, will have. If anything, I think it's got the potential to make it worse because what you're essentially doing is telling people to cram into a pub, bef- you know, in, in a shorter period of time. 
you've got you've got less time for in which people can can be in the pub. So it it seems possible to me that that will reduce that, that will produce more crowded pubs. I, I don't know. It, it, am I alone in thinking this that this could actually make things worse? Well, I know for a fact that uh, I, I walked through Lincoln on the first day of of these new regulations, and, and I was walking through just after ten o'clock. And the deluge of people coming out of the pubs and filling the streets was incredible to see. There was just it was like a Saturday night. It was crazy, but it was ten o'clock on a Thursday. Mm. Just people everywhere. I yeah, think that's it's also um, it's all, it's also a bit of a throwback. I mean, I talking to slightly older people, um, they will remember a time when uh, ten o'clock was the time that the pubs closed. Uh, because the UK was still following um, closing time regulations that were set down during the First World War up until about 2001. Um, and uh, yeah, it's actually a public health, uh, uh, sorry, a public safety risk. Um, I do wonder what the um, what the police think about it, actually, because um, one of the reasons that the police were apparently quite supportive of 24-hour drinking in the end was that it stopped this, uh, as as Bradley put it, deluge of people all spilling out onto the streets at 10 o'clock um, and sometimes getting into fights. And you only need a couple of people, don't you, um, at the end of the day. Um, so, yes, it's uh, and this, these regulations have only been in place for a few days, but you can see how somewhere at some point there's going to be some kind of spark and that's going to cause a fight and then that's going to... Uh, potentially, if there's COVID involved, also lead to a wave of infections. Um, so, you know, another example of how, on a micro level, the uh, the government may not have thought this through. Yeah, it, it's it's concerning because it seems to be once again we've spoken about it before, the government playing off the safety of people with the prosperity of of pubs, clubs, and restaurants, and ultimately, they do have a responsibility to to people and the economy but we've been saying it for a long time now people should come first and if if we're seeing a wave of people now onto the streets where we're not having a staggered release of of revelers from pubs then surely that's that's only could be considered dangerous in terms of public safety and in terms of keeping this r rate down and stopping the spread of covid yeah yeah absolutely um and you would see, you would normally see a sta- staggered release of people into into the streets. Um, obviously, pubs close pretty much when they want to most of the time, usually. Um, but yeah. And I suppose when when it comes to big cases now, where we having we're seeing spikes um, in in local areas, the responsibility is being shifted away from local government, national government, and towards pubs and businesses and individuals. It's their fault for not keeping social distancing. It's their fault that they weren't following the rules. Instead of the, it's it's no longer considered by the media to be the government's fault for not acting soon enough or the government's fault for not putting in the right measures soon enough. So I think that that's also quite a concern for me. And also... Just to follow up on on our COVID update here on the pod, we've also seen the launch of the new NHS app this week on Thursday. Did you, did you now, get a text about it? 
I didn't get a text about I, it. No, I got a text. Well, me, me and Amy both got texts at different times yesterday. Um, it, it's quite exciting because because it was a headline. The, the subject headed of it was um, NHS and track and trace, and we were like, oh god, we you know we're about to be told we have to self isolate for for two weeks. Um, but it was just uh, oh, please download our app. Oh, I can't download oh, the well. app. You'll, you'll, probably, you'll probably get a text. They're probably, they have to do it in waves, don't they? It, t- it takes a while to, to text 65 million people, I think. Well, yeah, I suppose so. I wonder how many people will um, actually download it, because I seem to recall when they were talking about launching. I don't know if it was this app or its predecessor. I think I've lost track by now, but um, there were lots of people who just flatly refused to download it because they didn't want the government to have their data. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, I sympathise with that position. Yeah, so um, that I think you're talking about the predecessor and the, the, the original app, the original concept was to be a contact tracing app, an app where it uses Bluetooth, it interacts with other devices to see if you've come into contact with somebody that's recently tested positive for COVID. So it stores that up on some database and then you'll get a notification if they then put on the system that they've been, that they've tested positive and I'm aware I think that this this sort of system is u- in use in Italy. It was trialled in the Isle of Wight in this country and failed miserably. Of all, so they, of all they places, back, the Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight would... Uh, no offence to the people in the Isle of Wight, but I would have thought that that would be a low use for smartphones down there. As well. <laughs> the famously sure. urbanised Isle of Wight. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a concrete jungle down there. I don't think they're quite in the medieval era in terms of technology. Yeah. It, Maybe the not, Reformation, I don't know. It's, it's not exactly, uh, if you want a, a place that is reflective of general life in the UK, Isle of Wight wouldn't have been the top of my <laughs> list. No, no. They've only just got rid of their 70-year-old underground trains running on their railway lines. So. I mean, I mean you know, the best place to test it, really, would have been a, a, a densely populated urban area, which, which Isle of Wight yeah. is not. Absolutely. So we then see the release of this, this new test app that they put out. Um, I think it was, again, tested on the Isle of Wight initially. Then <laughs> I don't know whether the, the app developers are based there, but it, it seems to be a popular hotspot for testing apps. Um, so they, they released this new app. They've spent millions of pounds on it. And basically what this app is, as I understand it, is a QR scanner. So when you go into restaurants and pubs, you can scan it and it basically puts on the system where you've checked in. And then if somebody then comes back and tests positive for COVID or yourself tests positive for COVID, you can put it on this app and then this app will inform other people that were there at a similar time that they've possibly come into contact with somebody that's tested positive for COVID. So really, it's just the track and trace system on a formal app instead of pubs and clubs and I mean, restaurants it, admit themselves. It's shit, isn't it? Let's, <laughs> let's not pretend it's anything else. You know, They've had months to do this. Um, I, I'm sure, you know... It, it's not as if apps are a brand new thing. You know, there are de- app developers out there that, you know, there's a whole economy around app development now, quite a big economy. If the government had really wanted to, really prioritise this, they, they could have very easily, you know, got, got a company to develop this app for them in a, in a short period of time. It, it's not, it literally isn't rocket science, you know. Um, it, it's just like everything else with this government. It, it's, 
I, I have a bundle of ideological issues with this government that, that we talk about at length, but they're also just crap. Like, they just... Like, they couldn't organise a piss off in a brewery. They are an awful, inept government. They really are. They're trying to um, do a speed run of the John Mage years. <laughs> I, I think that that's the important thing to make, Bradley, is that it's very clear that they're just inadequate and they don't know what they're doing. They're out of their depth. I think it, it goes back, in, in my opinion, to back when the likes of Gove were saying, let's not trust the experts. They're dangerous. We should listen to the politicians. And now we've got amateurs in charge of making apps. We remember the ferry crisis with Brexit when Grayling bought in a ferry company that doesn't own any boats. He's still around. It's a government that does not know what it's doing when it comes to procuring the resources that we need to deal with the problems of the time. And, and you know, yes, but also there, there is a healthy dollop of cronyism in there as well, isn't there? Yeah. Um, and and you know you you dig into to the companies that have been awarded contracts uh, during during the crisis, um, a, a suspiciously large number of them have some form of connection to to Tory party donors. So um, yeah, to to qualify my initial outburst, they they are inept, they are a bunch of idiots, but also there there is some cronyism going on there as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and it's simple as that. We just got to fight it now. And keep fighting. So, just to move on in terms of our COVID discussion, we spent 20 minutes on the initial uh, <laughs> COVID update, as we like to do. Sorry, but can we pause? Sorry, are you and are you outside? No, I'm inside. Yeah. There's just quite quite a lot of feedback on your mic. I don't, I don't know if you're quite close to the mic or anything. Oh, it's yeah. Quite, quite close. Is that is that a little bit better? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> So we're getting a bit of ASMR storm sounds, you know, coming through. You put our listeners to sleep. <laughs> so we've also seen again a quite consolidated attack on young people, specifically students, again around blaming them for the spread of COVID. Now we've just discussed about pubs closing early and the deluge of people coming out onto the streets which largely is middle-aged people who just wanted to get back out to the pub and have a drink, as we saw when they reopened the pubs. Young people largely are staying away and, and, and trying to drink at home where they can if they really want to drink. Now, we've seen in Manchester this week, the university there has imposed, I think it's Manchester Metropolitan University, has imposed a mandatory two-week lockdown on its students. It said to the students, you have six hours to get what you need and we're then going to lock down campus and your accommodation and you can't leave until you've essentially quarantined to ensure that there's no more cases of COVID amongst you. Now, the university has also said that we'll bring supplies to you over the next few weeks. We'll make sure that you're looked after, which uh, I, I say is probably a good step, but it really does at the moment feed into this fear-mongering around young people and students that somehow they are the cause of COVID peaking again. Now in Lincoln, as I said earlier, we've seen a rise in cases and the university isn't even back yet. The university doesn't start till midway through October, so you can't blame young people for that. And across the country, young people 
as we've said before, have been very conscientious. They've tried their best to stick to social distancing and guidelines. And yes, the tabloids are going to find a number of exemptions where people have had raves or parties. But if you're telling me that older people with their street parties earlier this year were not subject to the same outrage, then that's disgusting because young people once again are being vilified and used as a scapegoat. And I think that's unacceptable. And we spoke about it before. I mean, Bradley passionately spoke about it over the last couple of weeks and, and he wants to come in now. So Bradley. Yeah. I mean, so, so we, we talked about this, didn't we? Cause UCU, um, the, the, the teachers union on campus had, had quite a firm stance uh, and they were quite, they were quite dead set against actually, you know, sort of in-person teaching and the return to campus. Um, and at that time I, I, I sort of, I, I sort of didn't fully agree with that at the time because I, I, I think universities are in actually quite a difficult position here um, because with the best will in the world, and I don't know, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, but I, I do. Ge- I mean, I don't think there's many people that would really argue that just a completely online education can match in, in-person teaching. I, I, don't, I don't think there's many people that really would passionately argue that case. So, you know, universities, partly from, from a business model perspective, they, they've got to get people on the on undergraduate programmes like, to survive that we've created a market system now so that's what they have to do um, and, and you know and they, they've got to try and provide these students to, with, with, with a, a, a nice package to, to, to encourage them to, to come and study um, and, and sort of saying to students in the summer months uh, and applicants are, you know it, it'll all be online delivery I mean, that, that's not really going to encourage people to, to come and study at uni is it so you can sort of understand why universities have, have tried to, to get students back in purely from a business model perspective, but I think also genuinely like a, a, a pedagogical sort of, you know, way. It, it, it is better, I think, to be in person and to be receiving an education in person than, than, than via online. So I, I do sympathise with universities and fr- from what I've seen, a, a, a lot of them have put a, a lot of effort in, you know, I, I've not, no one's researched this, no one's got a comprehensive view of this, but my, my, my perception of it is that universities have tried to, to look and do this and, and develop this in, in a safe way. I think a problem has been lack of communication from universities. So a, a lot of students have, have, have been going to university not really sure what to expect when they get there. And I think that's a particular problem for first years and, and students that have never been to university before and are now leaving their families for the first time in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and you know, and now you're seeing in Manchester, in some, I think it's St Andrews in Scotland as well. Um, you know, students essentially having a, a week of a sort of a half freshes, you know, via Zoom and all the rest of it, um, and and maybe some some in person events. You know, so I think some students need to have put stuff on, and we could come on to whether that's a a, a responsible thing to do or not. Um, but and and now you know they're they're in a lockdown, and and they could be for the next couple of weeks. Some of the universities are rowing back on the on you know the idea of having any in person teaching at all when, when you know students will have will have been promised that. So I, I do think they're I do sympathise with universities and the position they're in, but also I, I think the communication should have been a lot clearer to students about uh, you know what what their experience would be like when they got there, um, what the next steps would would be if there were you know uh, significant outbreaks at the university and, and the risks associated with that. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a tricky situation, isn't it? And I, and I sympathise for students as well. You know, Freshers' Week is a massive part of the university experience for a lot of students. 
um, and and no students this year are really going to have a proper experience of that. And and I, I do sympathise that. And I, and also, you know, as someone that, that works in the sector, I do worry about what knock on effect that will have in in terms of like building you know communities on campus and and and, and the strength of the student movement across campuses as well, and and, and what sort of potential knock on effect that could have throughout the year. Yeah. Ewan, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, this is um, one of the things I've kind of been reading and I've heard a bit about it, is that this is kind of like a crisis that's been in the waiting for a long time with universities, mainly with mid-tier universities, is that they've had a lot of problems with investing lots of money and trying to get foreign students to come in, trying to get like students who aren't going to be going to like, you know, Oxford and Cambridge and all those ones. Um, but, you know, are aren't going to be going to like the lower ones um so this kind of like i could see within the next like couple of years um, a number of universities just going under just disappearing from the map as being because they wouldn't they won't be profitable Hmm. i suppose when we have this rabid expansion by universities looking to build as much accommodation as many buildings as possible, taking huge loans out to in order to complete these projects in many cases. So we have to remember the vast majority of universities outside of your Oxbridges don't make that much money. They're not billion pound institutions. They rack up massive debts because they're a business trying to attract students. So I think you're completely right that we might see a few universities, if not more, going under or at least having to reevaluate how they approach putting on the services for students and making sure that their education is is the best it possibly can be. Callum, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I was just going to pick up on that point because, uh, as we know, that a couple of years ago there were um, a couple of universities that needed to be bailed out by the government, otherwise they would have gone bust. Um, and the government's line at the time, and this was obviously long before the pandemic, the government's line at the time was that well we don't really want to do this but we have to for legal reasons and we're working on removing those barriers um, that will basically allow us to let those universities go bust Um, and it's a very pertinent point because imagine if uh, the University of Lincoln for instance was one of those universities and went bust how catastrophic that would be for the local economy Um, if you think about it we've got in terms of employers, you've got um, the university, the NHS, Siemens, and the hospitality industry. Well, the hospitality industry is heavily dependent um, on the university. Um, so that sort of thing would be a big risk to us, and uh, it would be a big risk to other university towns across the country. Um, so, again, it's uh, government's not really thinking through the uh, sort of economic implications. We could have the uh, a perfect storm here where the pandemic ultimately puts universities out of business and the government just shrugs their shoulders and, and lets it happen um, and leaves it up to market forces. Market forces and, and pandemics are not a great mix. Absolutely. But if anyone's heard that sort of talk of market forces, controversial point but the royal family this this week were also saying that they're running out of money because they're not getting as many at the gate at buckingham palace in windsor castle sorry can we just pause while i get my smallest violin in the world out 
And should we let them succumb to market forces as well, or are they going to be bailed out as well? Because I'd argue that university education is far more important than the royal family. But but are we to are we always told um, we're always told by royalists um, when, when we when we make noises about government subsidies of the royal family, we're always told that they're they're a net uh, benefit to the state, aren't they? That they that they you know because of all these estates that they own around around the, around the country, that actually they put more money in. Than, than they than they um than they take. So if if that's really the case, what why why is the state bailing out the royals? They they they've got plenty in their coffers, haven't they? Well, you would have thought so, and uh, I don't know whether they're going to have to have a flash sale or something on some paintings to pay the bills and I, I don't know. Pay... I, think, I think this is an opportunity to nationalise their assets, uh, and you know, I mean, I'm I'm a Republican by principle, but I understand why. You know, people like the idea of maybe maybe the sorts of pomp and circumstance and so on. It's a bit like, you know, when you have a, you know, the mayor of a town, for instance. I, I kind of understand that. So but if we're going to have, if we're going to have a monarchy, let's have a, a more low key one like the, like the Netherlands or, or or all of the Scandinavian monarchies. Let's have, you know. Let, let's put them in put, put them in suits put them up in maybe they get one palace each something like that so a, a flat somewhere they can do their um they can do their official events from um and then you know as i say all of those assets that they're clearly struggling to maintain you know they've clearly not got great business acumen um you know just nationalize them bring them back in uh, guarantee the employment of the people who work in there and then we can use that as an investment and that goes for all of the land all of the businesses um and yeah i think that would be a much better solution a, a great post covid uh, outcome for all of their tenants and all of their uh, employees across the country maybe we could even um mutualize some of them as well mutualize the the estate of the uh, of the duke of cornwall and the uh, and the duchy of of lancaster i think that would be a fantastic opportunity and it will bail out the monarchy as well, which will keep everyone happy. Well, there we go. I think we've solved the issue there on the whole monarchist debate. Um, I'd just like to bring the conversation back to back to young people and students, as tempting as it is to go on a debate about the, the uh, future of the royal family post-COVID. Maybe we pick up on that another day. We've also got to look at locally uh, what Lincoln is doing. I mentioned before that students aren't yet back in Lincoln, but this week the internal communication was sent round to students in the University of Lincoln, essentially saying that there'll be one-way systems, reduced contact hours. Uh, students will be given an extra face shield, you know, these these uh, plastic perspex shields, as well as their face masks that will be required indoors. Um, obviously, inc increased uh, cleanliness and, and cleaning regimes around campus. They've put up the fabled teepees around campus for extra working and social spaces uh, under shelter for students. And I think they're generally encouraging accommodation to stay separate. So you, if you live in a flat of seven, they give the example, you have to wait for two people to leave before you can visit that flat and obviously at a social distance. So in order to make a bubble of six. Now, we've, we've also got to remember that there is a number of uh, accommodations in Lincoln that have upwards of, of 15 and possibly even 20 people sharing a bubble. So visitors look like to be very limited as they are in Manchester at the moment. 
I suppose um, looking at the the Lincoln perspective, it's difficult to say what's going to happen because we're currently faced with uh, a limited number of students returning to Lincoln because the term has yet to begin. A number of events have already been put on, however, by students' unions. And I suppose, is it responsible to have indoor events such as quizzes whilst we're in the midst of a pandemic, which is currently at its second wave, which we're seeing a spike? I I, I don't know your perspective on it, Bradley, as somebody who works in the sector. Is it responsible for a student union to be encouraging large gatherings indoors? Uh, No, I I don't think there's any way around it, really, is there? Um, I, I can completely understand why um, students unions and other and other organisations w- would want to. Um, you, you know, freshers is a fantastic opportunity for students unions. It, it is the chance to to engage um, students potentially for the next three years. You know, some of the impressions that an SE makes on the student body in in those first couple of weeks could could define you know that relationship with the student for for years. Um, and and it's such a good opportunity to let them know about everything's going on, like course recollections, um, all the other events throughout the year, get the officer team known and out there, and all that sort of stuff. So I completely understand why students want to put on um, as many events as they can, and and make those events as engaging as they can, and and even look at doing in person events as well. Um, and look, it it is tricky, isn't it? Um, I I I don't I, I think there will be some ways of doing in person events that are okay. I think ones that encourage large numbers of people to be indoors are, are probably not very responsible at the moment. Um, and, and I guess for a lot of students unions, some of this stuff they've been planning, they were planning it, you know, probably July and August time when the cases were at a very low number and, th- and things were quite quiet um, over COVID. So, so you know, if, if I suppose if you were planning events, assuming that cases would be at a similar level to, uh, as they were in sort of July and August, you know, if we were looking at those number of cases at the moment, I, I could sort of maybe see that being okay. But, but given the quite rapid rise we're looking at, I, I, I do think students unions and, and universities really need to, to think twice about getting large numbers of people. You know, even if people, I think there was an event that Lincoln SU did, was the big quiz where people were sat on, on tables that were spaced apart from each other. And like, okay, yeah, fair enough. But, you know, people have got to get in and out of that building. Uh, pe- people have got to use common facilities. Uh, people won't be glued to their seat the whole evening. So I, I think, you know, it, it does still run a risk, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, as, as frustrating as it is, I think my, my instinct is always to say, you know, will this event encourage large numbers of, of people from different households to mix indoors? Um, if the answer to that is to yes, then, you know, you really got to think twice about that, I think. Hmm. Callum, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I was just um, going to make a quick point. You know, a lot of the venues that we talked about earlier um, are staying open and sometimes I think being a bit lax with the rules because they're trying to survive. Um, but that's not the case for universities. As Bradley said, They that's not. Um, I know that, um, you know, their trading arms are often a, a source of income, students' unions as well, as we talked about in a previous podcast. But ultimately... They don't need to do that. They don't need to uh, uh, implement a public health risk to survive. Mm. And and I suppose a, a student's union, whether it be their trading arm or not, also has a responsibility to its members to keep them safe, regardless of the situation, even in a case of 
um pre-covid it would be issues around overcrowding in some events they would have to obviously limit the numbers that can come in the same applies in this instance where they have to limit the numbers to the point that they can guarantee that there'll be no transmissions of, of COVID-19. And I think an indoor event of that size with that many people, given the current context, is a risk too far when it comes to preventing the spread of COVID. So I think, as as we've seen in Manchester, we may see in the next few weeks, Lincoln taking further actions to curtail the spread of COVID. They've said uh, to in, in their statement that they won't be taking any further action currently. But as I say, we haven't yet returned fully to term and we haven't yet had Freshers' Week. So it's all up in the air for the students of Lincoln. So we'll just return to our news roundup. We've got a bit of Labour news. We do like to talk about Labour, obviously, being many left-leaning people. But there's been a, a few instances at the moment in, in Labour news that have caused some outrage and some in in some cases some applauding from from certain wings of the party so uh we've seen the overseas operation bill uh abstained if i remember rightly by the labor party uh with a number of mps from the socialist campaign group uh defying the whip and voting against it for those who don't know the overseas operations bill in essence it it um removes a, a proposed presumption against prosecution to uh, British soldiers working overseas. Basically, what this means is that offences such as war crimes and tortures and torture, sorry, uh, will, will not be prosecuted against as harshly as we've seen before, uh, despite the fact that these breach international humanitarian law. The government seems to be very keen to defend soldiers. Um, who are coming back and facing potentially historical uh, crimes against them after numerous investigations, either by international bodies or by our our own government. So this is this is basically an act to, in some cases, stop prosecution for potential war crimes and torture being carried out. So what's what's our initial reaction to this? And just to say, three uh, Labour MPs who are pro parliamentary private undersecretaries um nadia whitmore beth winter and olivia blake have been removed by the labor leadership so what is our reaction to this ewan um so i can see why they thought they should abstain on it but i think it was based upon the idea that there was still in like the may days when they could you know abstain on a um on a bill and then it would have to go back to the house of commons and then have to be changed I think that was the idea. The problem is, they're not that anymore. They have Tories have eighty percent of a eighty seat majority, so they can do what they want. So it's almost incredibly pointless trying to like abstain on that. You might as well just have rejected entirely, say no, this is completely wrong. You would have had absolutely yeah the moral victory, whatever the whatever that is. But it's not even a bill that like helps soldiers, because Dan Jarvis mentioned this that like it stops soldiers from being able to like report war crimes. It helps those who do report like war crimes happening have more legal problems and stuff to go through. So it it doesn't really help anyone, but it's good for the Tories to 
bang on their chest and go, look how patriotic we are, we're helping our good old boy soldiers, hooray for the army, kind of messaging. It's completely pointless. Yeah. Chalum. Yeah, just to say, I think that every, every single one of those MPs that decided to vote against that bill um, deserves commendation, and I think they're on the right side of history. Um, you know, there's some suggestion that someone didn't understand. Uh, I think it was a one-line whip um, it would mean them losing their jobs. But at the end of the day, the onus is on the leader of the opposition. Um, at the very least, it should have been a matter of conscience uh, and therefore uh, a free vote from from Labour's perspective. Um, but as Ewan just said, it's not um, it's not really even particularly patriotic or helpful. Um, to soldiers, the 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 um the point of it is surely when you have a professional military, um you have the idea is you have discipline, you know we don't just give people a, a rifle and send them off overseas, right? We we give them months of training, months years of training even, um and you know they are supposed to behave. In, in, and look, our military has done awful things over the last 20 years or so and, and, and beyond. Um, but, you know, soldiers are expected to live up to certain standards, follow orders, of course. But, you know, when they are engaging in things like torture, right, that is bringing our military even further into disrepute. It's damaging the reputation of the UK. So... It's very unpatriotic, I would say, to try and defend those people because at the end of the day, they are damaging Britain. They're damaging Britain's brand. Um, now, obviously, you might say, well, you know, invading other countries under dubious, uh, um, you know, pretenses, maybe that's, that does more damage to our brand. But surely it can't, can't really help to also at the same time be very obviously trying to protect the, the people committing the worst excesses uh, during these uh, during these events, um, and so as as Ewan says, from Labour's perspective, there was absolutely no reason to vote this down. Um, at the end of the day, you know, you know, it's going to go through to a third reading, and it's going to go through the committees. You know, if you're trying to kill a bill, or if you're trying to kill a bad thing, you know, if if you're going going through a conference, for instance, we've all been to political conferences. You do everything you can to amend it, and then you try and vote it down. So you've got contingencies. If you don't succeed in voting it down uh, in its entirety, you try to amend it as well. So it's poor, poor politics. The only possible advantage um, it, it is that uh, it gets rid of a few more left-wing MPs from the front benches. But uh, in the long run, that might not work out so well because now those people are free to speak a little bit more freely. Um, so I think that that plan, if that, if indeed that was the idea of uh, Keir Starmer and all the people around him, I think it will backfire on him quite spectacularly. And it's, uh, I, think, I think it's a disgrace that that happened in the first place, especially that it was implemented by someone who has a whole pitch of being this principled human rights uh, lawyer. I think it's a real shame um, and if it continues to happen, I, I think there needs to be a very strong reaction to it. So I think it's going to disappoint a lot of people, not just left-wing people. I think it will upset a lot of the people who voted for him because they thought he was this principled individual. Yeah. 
Bradley, what was your reaction to the uh, to obviously this this whole saga around the overseas operation, Bill? I mean, it's disgusting, really, isn't it? It, it should never have been a one line whip. Um, you know, it's quite clearly, you know, quite, quite fundamentally a matter of conscience, um, and, and it should have been left as that. And I think, you know, this whole sort of well, the the, the plan is to try and amend it, and 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 then you know see, see what changes we can get for the third reading and all this sort of stuff. Fine, if if you want to take that strategy, anyway, there's a whole debate we can have about you know parliamentary tactics and and whether you should opt for an amendment of a bill or or, or just outright trying to vote it down and. That will depend on the bill and the content of it, and also the parliamentary majority, which has already been mentioned, which is eighty. And and you know, uh, on an issue like this, I don't think you're going to find many Tory rebels. Um, but uh, yeah, so so there is that whole debate about what what was the the most likely to succeed in terms of parliamentary tactics. Um, but you know, that that's quite a convoluted sort of arcane sort of argument about parliamentary tactics. It, it shouldn't have been a what it shouldn't be something that there's an issue of a one line whip over that, that people are getting sacked from the front bench over. Um no way should should that have been the case. You know, if it was a bill that the leadership passionately believed in um or passionately against and, and you know, front bench members were voting the opposite way, then I then I could understand that. But but Labour don't like the bill. The leadership don't like the bill. Why would you sack people for voting against it? It's just bizarre. And it to me it reeks of almost a bit of bait to to try and get certain members of the front bench out that they that they knew would ha- feel compelled to vote against it. Um, so you know, and it and it's shocking, isn't it, how quickly we've got to the point where people are being sat from the shadow cabinet for uh, yeah you know, for, for opposing torture basically that you know in, in such a quick turnaround from the Corbyn days that that's where we're at now six months on. Um, I think Keir is increasingly showing his true colours and basically his opt is to tack to the right on social issues um, to, to appease, in what he thinks will appease um, certain, certain areas of the working class that we've lost to, to the Tories um, and, and to basically not, not rock the boat too much on, on much else. You know, he, 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 the amount of times he's said on record that he fully supports the government, um, you know, you could almost play a drinking game with it. Um, I think there was the clip, wasn't there, from Gogglebox where where he was being mocked by it from people on Gogglebox mocking him for it. Yeah, they say, they say oh, I thought he was Labour. What's he what's he supporting the government for? Um, and yet, you know, c- clearly, it's it's a very sort of you know almost like a Joe Biden esque sort of approach in in you know why why Joe Biden won the nomination of well you know let let's not rock the boat too much. Let's not piss off too many groups in society. And, and and sort of just hope that the incompetence of the other guy is, is the thing that unseats them. Um, and I, I feel like increasingly Keir is, is almost playing from the Joe Biden playbook of, of you know, if, if I focus, on, you know, if I nail the government occasionally on competence issues, but don't really try to, to have any major ideological battles with them in the way that the Corbyn era did. Um, and, and also, you know, make, make a few noises that, that bring Labour a little bit more to the right on social issues. Yeah, so so his um his his mess ups on on statements around Black Lives Matter, his his un, un, inability to engage in a proper conversation about um reallocating police resources, um and and now on this issue as well, I you know it, it's quite clear that's his strategy, and what a depressing and ultimately doomed strategy that is. I'll, I'll tell you what it is reminiscent of more than Joe Biden, Ed Miliband. Right, you know, five years of just letting the government do whatever they want with no real uh, core opposition to it. That's where you end up in 2015. You will lose again 
Um, again, there's no advantage to the current strategy that's being put forward from what I can see. And and a lot a lot of people that that wanted Labour to tack back towards the centre and and perhaps support Akir, you know, the the often and it always baffled me then as well. But the constant refrain from them was, "Where's the opposition?" And you know, and they were referring to Corbyn. And I always found it bizarre because you know, very not in my lifetime had there been such a stark difference between the two major parties in the UK. Uh, and and quite often, you know, Labour and Corbyn won key battles in in Parliament against the government. Sure, there's definitely times when they could have been a more efficient operation within Parliament. I, I won't argue that. But but you know, this refrain of "Where's the opposition?" Like I, I always found that bizarre. And and how much more true is it now with the way that Starmer's been in Parliament since he since he's become leader? But none of those people are asking that question now. Ewan, um, with the mention of the Ed Miliband years. I think the um, like the thing with the Ed Miliband years was he was he was like trying to like bring about a new like at the start he was like yes I'm going to bring about a new project, we'll go more to the center of the Labour Party we're gonna and then you know he joined up with like Blue Labour and all that kind of the John Crudders crowd of um, kind of Labour, and then he buggered it up by also aligning himself with people like Ed Balls and the various kind of like festering remains of the Blair Eye Browner era, and he couldn't get across what like not only what he could do but like what the party could be properly so you get this kind of weird one nation labor thing going around with like mugs saying controls and immigration and i think starmer it's a deliberate one he thinks that this is what will win back voters yeah um and then sort of in the light of that i'm conscious of the time that we've got left so we've seen uh the first poll where Labour have taken a lead in 14 months. Obviously, polls are very much not to be trusted. Uh, that three-point lead is the first one that we've seen in a long time and the first time we've seen it under the Johnson government. But I'd, I'd pose a very simple question to you all, if you could all answer it. Is this patriotic Labour strategy working and will it work come a general election? Callum. Well, if you look at the polls, in the short term, it's, it seems to be doing OK. Um, I think that when you get closer to an election, uh, though, people need to start, will start, have to start thinking about where their material interests lie. Um, and if we look at the same, and we've been talking about Ed Miliband a bit, um, if you look at where Ed Miliband was this time 10 years ago, um, more or less the same position. If you look at the local elections, for instance, in 2011, 2012, you know, Labour was doing really well. But at some point over the next couple of years, there's going to have to be an economic programme put forward. Um, and if he makes the same mistake as Ed Miliband and doesn't promise a radically transformative economic agenda, that is when people may start to turn away from him, unfortunately. So if he is to try and marry this idea of patriotism, um, things like, if he wants to talk about family, for instance, you know, family forces flag, you know, if he wants to talk about uh, family, then he needs to be talking about universal childcare. If he wants to talk about uh, forces, he needs to be talking about um, support for veterans, possibly universal basic income. Um, and if you want to talk about your, fl um, your flag, uh, you need to not be 
um, protecting people who uh, exhibit torture uh, and talking about international standards and our place in the world in terms of fostering world peace. And that is where you will get a positive progressive approach uh, to patriotism, the sort of thing um, that was put forward, you know, like I would say, argued by the uh, post-war government, uh, which was uh, he likes to talk about that was so successful uh, about Britain being a force for good in the world. That's what Keir Starmer needs to do, and he needs to have a radical agenda which lives up to his ten pledges uh, that he made at the last uh, at the last leadership election. Mm. Uh, Ewan, do, is this strategy working? I would say yes and no. It will be a kind of yes and no one. It may win back some seats. Is probably the big thing. I don't think it's going to be some kind of like big ha kind of like yes we're going to get majority a Blair style landslide because the problem is yes you can go the kind of like right on social issues thing yes but then that also means you're like losing votes elsewhere and you kind of get um kind of very kind of mushy party like it'll probably be like Blair uh, probably be like Ed Miliband all over again in that yeah Ed Miliband managed to save some seats, but then you look at like those seats that were like lost. Quite a lot of what would what would be the red wall seats were lost. The whole red wall collapsing has been happening since like twenty ten. Um, so, like as Callum said, you need to marry this kind of idea of like patriotism and yes, if you're gonna patriotism and you know. Oh, we need to go to be more conservative on social issues and things, you know, we can't be progressive party. Okay, I won't respect that, but I understand why you do it, but you also do need to marry it with a kind of radical solution, radical economic solution to deal with the problems that people have. And and Bradley, same question to you. I mean, I mean the issue always with, with, with this strategy is if, if you try and out Tory the Tories, what, why wouldn't people just vote for the Tories? Like I, I, you know, it's it simply if you try and tax the right on certain issues in order to win back some voters, I think it simply reinforces the narrative that the other party is putting forward. So I think, you know, maybe I mean, I think also at the moment, polling is pretty much useless at, at this at this point, because we're, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, and a recession uh, that the world is on fire. Like it, it things are crazy at the moment, I, you know. Can we really think that, that what people are saying in a YouGov poll is really indicative of, of who the actual next government is going to be? It, it, I, so I think it's sort of a bit of a fool's game at the moment to try and read too much into any sort of poll in whatever way they're going. Um, I, I do also think that, that if ultimately the narrative that is settled upon is that this government were, were inept and, and handled this crisis poorly, um, I think a lot of that will, will be shifted onto Boris himself personally, who it looks like probably won't be making it to the next the next general election. Um, you know, he, his performance is deteriorating, um, and, and there's a lot of rumours swirling around that you know he, he basically doesn't doesn't enjoy the job and doesn't really want it anymore. Um, so I, I I think you know to to try and read too much into what's going on in Poland at the moment is is a bit of a fool's game. Um, I think I think it, you know there's a chance that that Starmer's approach could could m- maybe uh, w- win the next election. I'm very skeptical. Um, I think the other thing to be asked is, is at what cost w- would we win that election? You know there'd be various parts of our platform that basically we'd have to shed. I, I think he will. I think you know the next manifesto 
will, will be much more moderate than the 2019 one, probably more moderate than the 2017 one as well, um, despite his, his leadership campaign pledges. Um, so, you know, what, what, what will the cost be there of, of, of winning that election? Uh, but in the long term, it doesn't help anyone at all. Um, if, if you, if you, you know, we, we need systemic change to be able to combat climate change, to, to tackle gross levels of inequality we've got uh, on the planet. We, we need systemic change to do those things and, and tacking to the right or the centre or the status quo um, on, on, on enough issues to, to, to push you over the line and first past the post to get a parliamentary majority that then sort of can't really do much to, to systemically change things. You know, you, you maybe bumble along for 10 years, you, you know, New Labour, but as much as I criticise them, they, they did make a lot of headway on, on things like childhood poverty um, and, and some social, socially liberal issues. So, you know, it, it's not as if a Kia, a Kia government wouldn't make any positive changes. Um, I'm sure they would, um, but, but it wouldn't be enough to really get to the root of the issues we face. And then 10 years down the line, that because they've not fundamentally changed the conversation in the country, because they've not changed how the system operates, it's very easy for a Tory government to, to undo a lot of the progress, which is exactly what we've seen in the last 10 years of, of Tory rule. Yeah. So we'll wrap up there. Just my take on that is that really, if you want to be proud of your country, it's a country that has a good healthcare system, looks after the most vulnerable, gives everyone a fair shot at a good life. I think that's a country to be proud of. So it's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from Callum. Yep. Love your country and love and care for everybody in it. Goodbye. See you next time. Uh, goodbye from Bradley. Bye, folks. Be safe. Be sensible. And a goodbye from Ewan. Uh, goodbye. Farewell. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to the 1201 podcast, and we'll see you again soon.